Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. This week, Scott and Evan speak with Joe Asher, the CEO of U.S. Operations at William Hill, in a few minutes. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Evan Novi williams Let's start. We've got a new owner. That is in the National Football League with approval pending, of course. Well, he's pre-vetted. David Tepper is a part owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He'll have to get rid of that, of course, as part of his deal to buy the Carolina Panthers. An interesting note, by the way, I was told by somebody on his inner circle that his private plane is decorated with Steelers colors. So like, you could see him at Home Depot right now buying some blue paint. Like, Got to fix that. <laughs> bye-bye black, bye-bye gold. Got to paint the tail, you know, the tail stripes uh, blue. But he paid, and we're trying to figure out, if you're the NFL, are you happy about a $2.3 billion price tag, or are you not happy? There was some talk early on that Jerry Richardson wanted $3 billion, and some of the other folks bid 2.6, but they didn't have the money. So, Eben, 2.3 ties what Josiah valued the Nets at. It's close to 2.2 that Tillman Fertitta paid for the Houston Rockets, but the NFL is supposed to be the big behemoth. Yeah, this is the first NFL team to be on the market since uh, the Pagulas bought the Bills. Uh, in that time, there's been a number of NBA transactions, as you said. That was $1.4 billion. The, the, for the Pagula and the Bills. Yeah, team. four um, years ago. So you happy with that appreciation? I mean, it's it's a, it's a tremendous appreciation, it's a good, right? It's, it's a good it's, bump. It's great in a vacuum. Uh, the fact that this is what the Nets sold for without the Barclays Center, right. just the team itself, um, I would imagine is – probably speaks more to the NBA's growth recently than, than the NBA, NFL's uh, But the national thereof. revenues are so great in the NFL. Sure. Yeah, but the Nets play in New York and, and the Panthers play in Charlotte. Um, two different markets, obviously. But yes, I, I think if you're an NBA fan or if you're Adam Silver, you're thrilled that the Brooklyn Nets, without their building, sold for the same amount as an NFL franchise in 2018. But... Even though, yes, we're talking Carolina Panthers versus the New York audience. Still, it's the NFL. And the Panthers will get exposure nationally at some point. Yeah, Here's what would worry me, that only one whale, and by that I mean multi-multi-billionaire, showed up for the party. That's it. That's, this, is the, this, is the, this is the kind of guy you want bidding on your franchises. You'd like to have three or four of them involved, and he was the only one. In fairness, there are a number of other teams that we're expecting to hit the market at some point in the next couple of years. We've certainly heard that there are people with a lot of Denver, money that New may, Orleans. may be waiting for those to hit the market as well. So we'll see in, in, in this next round who shows up to the party. Speaking of football, Los Angeles Rams owner Stan Kroenke and his wife Ann Walton Kroenke are investing $1.6 billion in the team's new Inglewood Stadium. Now let's talk about the numbers that we just heard they're <laughs> investing 1.6 when the bills sold for 1.4 <laughs> the cost of this stadium has gone from 2 to 4.5 4.6 you have to wonder and he's agreed to cover cost overruns by the way is this a good bet can la produce enough season ticket holders psl buyers sponsorship dollars to justify this sort of expenditure. Everything about the money involved here is mind-boggling. Uh, the the most expensive stadium ever built in the U.S. before this one was was MetLife, where the Jets and Giants play. $1.7 billion. 
they're going to end up more than blowing past doubling that. Who knows? At the end of this, this could be a $5 billion and part project. Of, part of this, by the way, is earthquake construction demands. Which but, isn't but a surprise. Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, you, you know, know where you're building it. You know your, exactly yeah. where you're building it. Uh, he's, he's building a building that is worth twice as much as the team is worth. Uh, yeah. And Scott's right. That certainly starts to raise questions about whether or not this is an L.A. market that's getting two new teams that are going to play there. It has a new soccer team. It has two basketball teams, a hockey team. There's a lot of sports there, two college football franchises that are blue bloods. Um, there's a lot of competition there for, for dollars. J.P. Morgan's going to lead the raise, and then they'll syndicate out. Let, let's see what the appetite is. Speaking of team owners... Owner of the Mavericks, the NBA's Mark Cuban, says because of sports betting, every pro sports team is going to double in value. Now, let's see if that happens. Because probably the biggest thing of the week, the biggest decision for sports betting from the Supreme Court, they struck down a 1992 federal law this week that effectively banned commercial sports betting in most states, opening the door to legalized betting. Stephen Paliuka, the Bain Capital Public Equity co-chairman, says that while the ruling allows the nation to bet on sports, not every state will agree to it. My understanding is the ruling is actually focused on states' rights more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. Um, they have gambling all over the rest of the, the, the nations, and as you know, in the U.K., soccer gambling. So I think it'll play out as a states' rights ruling. I know we talked about this earlier this week, but... Here we go, because we have tried to dissect this ruling and what it means for the entire industry. Well, Pyle Yuka, by the way, more than just being capital, he also part owner of the Boston Celtics, right. so he's in, he's got some skin in the game in sports. And as for Cuban's comment, Eben saw it first. I was paying attention to something else, and he called my attention to it. So I messaged Mark, and I said, we'd sort of like to use your comments, but I get the feeling you were being hyperbolic here. You don't yeah. really think that these franchise values are going to double because of this. And he responded saying, no, I'm not being hyperbolic. I really think that the media uh, money will propel the values to double where they are. So when you, when you pencil and paper it, I don't know how you get there, but hey, that's what Mark thinks. Yeah, to use a gambling analogy, give me the under on, uh, on, on franchise valuations <laughs> doubling. But I mean, I, I'm bullish on it as, as we've talked about. I, I do think there's going to be a tremendous boost to, to every professional franchise, especially those in the NBA and, and, and NFL, because if you look at gambling in Vegas, those are the two sports that get a, a huge majority of the uh, of the handle. Uh, this is going to lift a lot of a lot of tides, a lot of boats. Uh, if you look at media, if you look at franchise valuations, if you look at sponsorship, ad spend, all that, uh, everything's going to go up now that uh, a few states and, and more and more are going to start legalizing this. We'll see how this whole ruling plays out for the industry. Now time for this week's interview, Scott and Evan. I think you can take it from here. You know we certainly can. And today we speak with Joe Asher. He's the CEO of William Hill's U.S. Operations. Had that job since 2012 when William Hill acquired Brandywine Bookmaking. That's a company he founded. Brandywine was a pure startup. Asher launched it in 2008 under the brand name Lucky's Race and Sportsbooks. That's after he relocated to Las Vegas from New York. Asher has a long background in the gaming industry and a lifelong passion for race and sports betting. Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Happy to be here. So, Joe, is there anything that's happened this week, anything big you can think of that we need to be talking about in your industry? Anything of note? 
Well, you know, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but the Golden Knights uh, tied up the series last night with a uh, commanding victory. And I will tell you the story that I was out uh, with the family for Mother's Day with some friends, and I was saying to uh, the friend who was with it that I wanted to bet the Golden Knights uh, because I thought other than the first eight minutes in Game 1, they played very well in Winnipeg. So I wanted to bet them, but I was somewhat distracted, so I didn't get a chance to get my bet down. But now... Should you choose, or should anybody choose, to uh, put a few ducats on Mr. Neal and the boys? They have an opportunity. Sports, wagering, legal in the United States. We have heard this coming for so long. What am I to make of it? There's so much. What, do, what are the takeaways? Well, look, I think the takeaways are, first of all, that it's going to go state by state, so it's not throughout the United States. Uh, not what the sports uh, league wanted, by the way. You know, you don't always get what you want. But, um, you know, so look, historically, uh, for certainly for the last 25 years since this federal law called PASPA uh, was enacted, sports betting is... Uh, from a legal perspective, basically been limited to uh, the great state of Nevada and to a small extent, uh, Delaware. Uh, And everywhere else, it's been in the black market where it's been run by illegal bookies uh, who uh, have had a a monopoly uh, because there's been no legal competition. And uh, that, uh, I think, is going to start to change. Uh, in in some states, you know, as soon as this summer and uh, before the football season, and then we'll see what the uh, progression is throughout the rest of the U.S. Keywords there, some states, I think your casual viewers who saw the news this week may think that, oh, in my state, I'm going to be able to gamble, you know, who knows, two weeks. I, I heard that for New Jersey. Realistically, how many states do you expect to be online heading into the NFL season, so four months from now? Well, look, it, I, I think it's important, n- number one, People are betting today, right? They're just betting illegally with their bookie, and 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 they've been doing so for many years. Um, certainly, New Jersey uh, will be ready to go within a matter of weeks, and you know, weeks is a somewhat indefinite uh, way of putting it. Uh, Delaware, of course, already has the infrastructure in place uh, because of the NFL parlay betting through the state lottery. Uh, West Virginia and Mississippi have also passed laws, uh, so. That takes you to four states in addition to Nevada uh, pretty quickly. Uh, beyond that, you have states like um, New York, which passed uh, an earlier piece of legislation, but I think it's expected that there might be some additional legislation to come. Uh, Pennsylvania, which has a law that was passed with a uh, prohibitively high tax rate, and we could talk about that in a bit. I'm not quite sure what happens uh, in Pennsylvania uh, as a result of the tax structure. Um, and, you know, other states. Um, Timing is subject to so many things, right? The legislative session in the particular states, the internal political dynamics of those states, and so forth. But I think the fundamental takeaway is that the Supreme Court uh, basically said, look, this is up to the states to decide um, how to uh, how to deal with the issue. And uh, if New Jersey wants to have sports betting and Utah does not, well, that's okay. And when it finally settles in a couple years, when all these states have decided if we want to offer it, if we don't want to offer it, et cetera, how much money do you think is actually? I mean, we see re- reports that range in, in, in tremendous amounts from $100 million to $500 million. How much money do you think is actually out there in, in the U.S. market once it gets itself off its feet? Yeah, boy. I mean, that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. Look, I don't think there's any that's doubt. It. Just sixty four thousand. Yeah. 
uh, some multiples of that, perhaps. But look, I don't think there's any doubt that the uh, U.S. is going to be the biggest legal sports betting market in the world, right? Just based on population and uh, and wealth. So it's going to be a, a a really big market. You know, all these numbers that have been um, uh, hypothesizing about the size of the illegal market, nobody really knows, right? I mean, you know, the, the number that was bantied around for many years was three hundred and eighty billion dollars. And I saw a great um, article that somebody wrote that literally traced back the origin of that $380 billion number. And guess where it originated? It was just completely made up. <laughs> but it survived through repetition, in, uh, uh, and it became uh, something that people talk about totally through repetition. But literally, if you traced it back, a guy was asked a question at a uh, congressional hearing, and he just sort of made up an answer uh, off the cuff. And so... Um, and the answer is nobody knows, and and the reason nobody knows, of course, is that the illegal bookies don't uh, report their income on their taxes, um, as of course we're required to do in Nevada and uh, other states that regulate will have um, uh, precise numbers that will be reported by uh, by the operators in those jurisdictions. We are chatting with Joe Asher, the CEO of U.S. Operations for William Hill. You don't just show up in the U.S. and say, "Hey, now that it's legal, let's go. We're in business." What sort of process, how long, how much, what's invested in William Hill in this day becoming a reality? Uh, look, so, so William Hill made a, made a fortuitous uh, series of acquisitions. Uh, you know, the, the, there were three small companies in Nevada. Uh, in 2011, we were competing with each other and slugging it out in a tough economy. And William Hill uh, came over from uh, the UK, where it's a well-known uh, consumer brand uh, in England. Uh, it's got an 80-year um, history, and and uh, they were looking to geographically diversify, and so they bought the three small businesses um, in Nevada, and that's how one of those was a business that I had started. So that's how I wound up coming to work for William Hill, and uh, those deals closed in 2012 after uh, about a year-long process for the company to get licensed by the Nevada Gaming Commission, and then uh, those three small businesses were rebranded as William Hill. And uh, you know the business has just um, grown pretty uh, pretty significantly from there in in the six years. I mean, when we started, we had about 12 percent of the uh, market share in Nevada, and now we've got 31 percent, uh, which makes us the clear number one uh, in the market. And it's a hotly competitive market uh, because you know we compete day in and day out with the likes of Caesars and MGM and Wynn uh and uh, and others uh, station casinos does a great job with their sports books so uh it, it, throughout that period of time obviously you know you you wind up with a a good group of people and we got a great team of people who you know have figured out um how, how to make this business work within the regulatory structure that we face and and this is a unique regulatory regime uh in certainly in nevada and that will be to some extent replicated uh in other places and there was a notable ex- investment outside of Nevada as well a number of years ago. Uh, you guys settled with Monmouth Park in New Jersey. You paid them a million dollars for the for the rights to their gambling moving forward uh, at a time when New Jersey wasn't allowed to offer gambling. Were there people that thought you were crazy? Is there some validation in, in the fact that we now, sitting here in 2018, have this ruling? Yeah, look, I think it's yes and yes. I mean, look, look I, uh, 2012, I, uh, I started reading in the press. Uh, about this guy, Dennis Drazen, who was pushing to have sports betting at Monmouth Park. And so I tracked down his telephone number and just cold called him and introduced myself. And uh, 
made an appointment to go and see him, went out to Monmouth, which, uh, uh, as you know, is a beautiful track during the racing season, sat up in Dennis's box. He's a big racing fan, had a horse racing that day, and I think his horse won, so it was very auspicious. Um, and we got to talking, and where we wound up is we spent, uh, it was actually a little over a million dollars to convert uh, an old cafeteria uh, and build that out into a sports bar with the idea that that would become a sports book whenever sports betting was legal at Monmouth Park. And you know, we had no idea if that meant it was going to be in 2013, 2015, 2018, 2025. I mean, it was just, it was a bet. Um, but we got the rights to uh, to run sports betting at Monmouth Park for the next 50 years. And so that sort of covers my lifetime. Uh, you got a few more years to go. But, you know, for me, that was a sufficient period of time. And, uh, you know, it was just a bet. And it turned out to... Uh, um, to be a pretty good bet. If that contract was available right now, if Monmouth was in the market shopping for a betting partner for 50 years, how much do you think that would cost you to get right now? Boy, I don't know. Good question. More. Good, good question. I'll but, answer you know, more. <laughs> you know, but look, we're, par- we're partners in it, right? So we're 50-50 partners in it. So they're going to get uh, half the profits out of the uh, out of the venture. And obviously, we're hoping that those uh, profits are going to be very meaningful uh, the the thoroughbred horsemen actually run the racetrack, and so the profits will go uh, to the horsemen to better the racing product, uh, which has been such an important part of uh, of New Jersey and the local economy in the area. Now you need people to come and use your platform. What's the landscape like? You mentioned MGM, you mentioned Win. Now we've got DraftKings. You've got a lot of players now fighting for the same customers. What's that battle look like? How do you make them come to William Hill? Look, I think it's fundamentally similar to what we do in Nevada, where you know we operate in a hotly competitive uh, market today, and you know we try to offer a really good product to our customers, uh, very good mobile app, um, in-play betting. We have by far the deepest um, in-play product. We're now up to twenty-seven percent. For people who don't betting. know what that is, in-play, can, can you just say what it is? And what sorts of bets on what sorts of sports, what's available, what can I do? Sure. So in play basically means betting after the game has started. Something that's been very popular in Europe for a number of years, relatively new uh, to the United States. And what really people are betting on in play is who's going to win the game, the point spread, uh, the total, whether it's you know, total points, total goals, depending on the sport. Uh, and, and that's really what people bet on. Now, things like tennis... You can bet game by game and set by set, which is quite popular. Tennis, believe it or not, is a big in-play sport. Uh, you know what the biggest in-play sport is in uh, in the U.S. for William Hill? Major League Baseball. I would say baseball. Well, you saw what Mark Cuban said. Oh, it'll finally be fun to go to a baseball game again. I know he's taking a shot at a league where he's not an owner and tried to get the Pirates. But is it true that you've seen engagement, fan engagement soars, when folks are on their mobile app and play. Look, look, I mean, baseball is a great example with in-play, right? you got a three-hour game. Uh, three hours? What speedy game you know, are you and, watching? And, and, <laughs> and, you know, exactly. And, but but with what people bet a lot on, on um, in in-play baseball is will a run be scored in this inning, yes or no? So will there be a run scored in the first inning? Will there be a run scored in the second and inning? And if there's a leadoff double, the odds come down. Yeah, the, okay. the, the, the odds um, consistently change. They go up when there's two outs and two strikes and so forth. And, um, you know, we'll have guys bet 1000 bucks an inning. 
And what they're doing is they're taking, you know, ballpark three-hour game and, you know, trimming it down to a 20-minute game. And and so it's it engages them. And, you know, when when the outcome of the game is probably already decided, right, it's, I don't know, seven to nothing in the eighth inning, uh, people will still bet. So sports uh, leagues are used to that's when customers either shut off the TV or tell their kids, come on, let's beat the traffic. But exactly. now there's a reason to stay. Now there's a reason to stay, whether it's total runs that you're betting or, or what have you. So it keeps people engaged, keeps them engaged longer, and makes the makes the experience more enjoyable. I mean, you know, I get these reports um, every day, and, and there are probably, you know, four or five that I read pretty religiously. And, um, and one of the things you see uh, for in-play is just the sheer number of people who are just betting $2, $5, uh, just to have a little bit of action, they're watching something on TV, so they might as well uh, have a few dollars on it. And 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 you know, in Nevada, that's all very um, widespread. Sports betting's out in the open; it's culturally accepted, and and you know, people from across the uh, professions and socioeconomic spectrum, uh, you know, they meet in the sports book. They they bet, and it it really does cross. Uh, all kinds of different lines, and it's really just to have a little bit more reason uh, to watch the game and have something to root for. We're speaking live in studio with Joe Asher, uh, CEO of U.S. Operations for William Hill. Joe, once the celebration's over, how do you, how does William Hill look at individual states? What's your opportunity in, let's say, Mississippi or Missouri or, or West Virginia, states where you don't have a huge presence right now? Yeah, no, look, I, I had... Uh, you know, my original the original statement we put out they, they made me take it out, but it said we're going to have an epic celebration, and you know they made me take that out, but it's okay because we did have a you know we had a well deserved party for what'd the you team. do? Where'd you go? Who was there? Uh, you know, it was it was for uh, for all the folks who were who worked for William Hill and were available, and they could bring a, a guest, and it was at the SLS Casino uh, on the Las Vegas Strip in the Sarah's Club, great uh, great venue. We had a, a local musician who we think is great. She came out. Uh, her name is Kara Brown, and she was uh, performing, and we just had a great time. You There's know, only all... one real question. Top shelf open bar? It was a top shelf okay, open okay. bar. Okay, that's a real celebration. You just know, checking. it was, It was. A, you know, and look, I finally bailed out when it was getting, you know, pretty late because I knew I had an early morning to get up. So I, I got about an hour of sleep. I got, you know, probably another half hour on the on the plane ride out to, uh, to New York. Uh, but you know that's okay. There'll be plenty of time to sleep uh, when I'm dead. So uh, you know, right now we got a lot to do. That answers another question. There, are, some people have said that a more legalized nationwide framework might affect business in Las Vegas. You know, the the, the monopoly on sports betting is, is no longer contained to Nevada. Uh, I assume, since the celebrations happening out there, there you you don't have those concerns necessarily. No, not at all. I mean, people said that the uh, spread of casinos to other states was going to be the death knell of Las Vegas. And obviously, you know, Las Vegas is bigger, better, stronger than ever, more vibrant than ever. It's a great place to live, by the way. It's a wonderful place to visit. So I hope everybody comes out for a visit. Um, and, and look, sports betting um, is already going on, right? So it's not like this activity is not happening. Now people are still going to come out to, to uh, Vegas for March Madness. They're still going to come out for the Super Bowl and other uh, big events. So uh, from is it a good for Las Vegas perspective? I think it's great because, you know, look, my general operating philosophy uh, since I've been in the industry has been what's good for the big casino operators in Nevada is good for William Hill. And, and so folks like MGM, Caesars, uh, and others who will um, be able to offer sports books in other jurisdictions, uh, El Dorado Resorts, Penn National, Boyd, and so forth, uh, you know, that's going to be good for them. 
makes it good for uh, Nevada. It'll be good for Las Vegas. It'll also be good for the folks who work in the industry uh, whose talents um, are going to be um, necessary as, uh, as the industry uh, seeks to expand. We are chatting with Joe Asher, CEO of U.S. Operations for William Hill, and I know this is tangential to what you do, but we did speak with a couple of sports owners yesterday, Ted Leonsis being one of them, and he is convinced that the media part of all this is where the real money lies for the U.S. sports leagues, for the owners, for the valuations of their franchises, that the media opportunity is where this money is coming. Have you seen that globally? And what would you say to the U.S. leagues and the owners who seem to be taking a cautious approach and all I've heard so far is integrity, integrity, integrity? Yeah, and and, and look, um, to the extent you're talking about integrity, um, of course the integrity has to be better and amplified in the legal, transparent, regulated market than what exists today. So this idea that somehow there's an increased threat to integrity of sports is just silly it's not reality and and so the integrity tax that's just you know it's just a fancy name for a cut of the action integrity tax but, i like that it's well, no longer a fee it's tax well, but that's what it is right you're you're saying <laughs> they you want know, their share sure that you know it's just a cut of the action but but look my response to that is there's plenty of money in this for um the sports leagues for the teams they are the biggest beneficiaries of this i mean you know i read what mark cuban said about the uh, the franchise values doubling as a result of legalization i sent mark an email i said mark were you being hyperbolic and he came right back and said no this is not hyperbole he believes that whether it's the media whether it's the engagement targeted at whatever that this will offer that kind of bump to franchise values well so so and here, here's a key point you you look at What's the most valuable sports league in the world? It's probably the English Premier EPL, League, sure. right? Uh, incredibly iconic franchises, right? Manchester United, now you got Man City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Tottenham, and so on. And and the way the um, the ecosystem works there is that there, there is no statutorily mandated integrity tax or any type of statutorily mandated payments to the teams or to the EPL. But what do you have? You have about half the teams actually sponsored by betting companies, uh, and you have um, the betting companies spending lots of money on advertising and marketing uh, to to market their products, which leads to enhanced engagement in the games because people are watching the games and the, the, the betting companies are promoting the games through their advertising, which leads to higher viewership, higher rights fees, and it's this virtuous, um, it's this virtuous circle. The biggest loser, if, if, they, if they actually got the integrity tax on, uh, and, and you know, as you know, initially they came out and they were seeking 1%. Sounds like a small number, but it's actually 1% of handle, which translates into 20% of revenue, right? I mean, that's like real money. There's some slim margins here. We're not... We're talking, yeah, a margin of 5%. And then they had this idea that somehow the Nevada sports books were trying to run at a low margin and weren't really trying to be profitable, which was just like kind of silly to anybody who's ever been involved in it. Um, But be that as it may, I think now the the latest talk has been around a quarter point integrity tax, which is still 5% of revenue. But who's the biggest losers if they actually got that on? It would be the media companies. Because what's the one controllable expense that, that sports betting operators have? It's your marketing budget, right? You got your compliance costs, you got your 
bookmaker, risk management costs. You got your finance people. You got your frontline employees. You got your technology costs. Those are largely fixed costs. The one controllable expense is marketing. And so if you got to turn 20% of your profits straight over to the sports leagues, well, that's 20% less you got to spend with Bloomberg, with ESPN, with Fox, with anybody. And so if they ever got this integrity tax on, it'd be a disaster for the media companies. Those of us who lived through the FanDuel DraftKings wars would say those marketing costs may be uncontrollable because they didn't stop. Joking, and, of course. And you know what? They made it. It was pretty, look, it was pretty tough to watch um, ESPN and, and some of the other networks in September 2015. Oh, they when, took the money. You know, they, they took the they, money. They, they, they took the money and, you know, um, ultimately did not prove to be money well spent uh, based on, 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 uh, uh, where it was at that time. And, you know, but look, that's a whole separate episode we could have about, you know, all the efforts of we're not gambling, we're not gambling, we're not gambling to, well, we're, we're going to be a sports book in New Jersey now, right? I mean, you know, give me a break. But look, you know, uh, we'll see how it all shakes out. Are there things that you have not been able to invest in knowing that your clientele was essentially just in Vegas that, that maybe you'll be able to do now that, you know, New Jersey's on board, Delaware's on board, there will be more and more states and more money? Look, I th- you know what, Evan, the, b- the biggest issue is, is going to be um, getting people, getting the people who have the background, the experience, the skills that we need uh, to, uh, to ramp up the business in disparate locations, right? One of the advantages we have uh, in Nevada is you know, we're, we're, you know, we have people in the field and then we have people um, in the office and it's, you know, it's, um, it's a situation where folks are mostly together. Now, you know, you're looking at an operation in New Jersey and Mississippi and, uh, and other places. And so, you know, those, th- those are the types of things that, um, that we start to think about as we look to scale up the business. And, you know, look, this is such a heavily regulated business, the need to do it uh, with people who understand how to operate uh, in the regulatory environment that we're used to uh, in Nevada is, is something that's real important for us. All right, that's Joe Asher, the CEO of U.S. Operations for William Hill. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's time for takeaways. Eben, your takeaway from Joe Asher. Yeah, this is a guy who spent the last six years of his life trying to figure out a way to get sports gambling in states outside of Nevada, and he's finally succeeded. And the fruits of that labor is a New Jersey marketplace that he is likely to dominate right off the bat. We talked about that investment at Monmouth Park, a uh, million dollars. You know, that, that those rights would be worth so much more right now if they were being negotiated. But he has them for the next 50 years, and at some point in the next month or so, New Jersey's going to come online, and the first bets being taken are going to be at that place in Monmouth Park. My takeaway is how little everybody seems to know. These are smart people who've had a lot of time to prepare. We've seemingly known this day was coming, and yet... Oh, no, now it's state by state. They want federal regulation. People just really don't know what to expect, how to proceed, where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, where do we lobby, who do we talk to? There's still so much confusion. And yet, amid all that uncertainty, this is going to happen. There's going to be a betting window at Monmouth very soon, and the dollars will start flowing. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. And this week, Eben, number 20. 
three, and I steer you towards Chicago. <laughs> I actually know this one uh, because we just talked about it. <laughs> number 23, the number that Michael Jordan wore for the majority of his career. ESPN, uh, when it was announcing kind of what the next year looks like uh, for the network, announced that they are doing a 10-part series. The upfronts. The do- upfronts. The upfronts for, for people in the industry. Uh, a 10-part series on Michael Jordan, uh, documentary style. Uh, I think this is a slam dunk. Uh, Michael Jordan's one did of those you, players. Did you just say that? I did. You went, I did. went with slam dunk. I think, it's a, I think it's a grand slam. He played baseball, too. Yeah, but he didn't hit grand slams. <laughs> uh, this is a guy, obviously, who spans a lot of different generations. Uh, the, the success that ESPN had with its OJ documentary uh, last year, maybe two years ago at this point, uh, won some awards with it. Uh, this is clearly a play for ESPN launching off of their 30 for 30 series. It'll be on ESPN Plus, too. They want, exactly, ESPN Plus. They want more content that's not just live. Uh, and doing a series on Michael Jordan seems like the easiest way to uh, to attract viewers. Do you, do you like the dichotomy, though, that this is for the younger people who kind of court-cutting watch this way who probably never saw Michael, and some might not even know he was a player? I do, yeah. You the, see the these Hornets. stories all the time of people who are asking, Michael Jordan, oh, the guy that owns the, the Charlotte Hornets? The sneaker yeah, guy. He had a playing career, yeah, Did he too. ever play? Yeah. Right, right. Well, we've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Eben Novi-Williams. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with lacrosse's first millionaire, Paul Rabel, a man whose talents on the lacrosse field and his business savvy off is building quite a brand for himself. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. iTunes.